Well, get your Bibles or your smartphone out and turn to the book of John, John chapter 2. So how many of you watched uh, Super Bowl 55 this year? Uh, let's ask it this way. How many of you didn't? I mean, seriously? It's a cold, dark night in February in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, what else is there to do? So let's back up. I, I, I watched the Super Bowl, and the last thing in the world I expected was that Tampa Bay Buccaneers were somehow going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, they, they are, let me ask you this, a month before the Super Bowl, so this had been like a couple playoff games before the Super Bowl, how many of you picked Tampa Bay to win it all? Put your hands up high. Yeah, I didn't think so. Anybody a year ago from now, a year ago, think, oh, Tampa Bay, that's the team that's going to win next year's Super Bowl if we have a season. I don't think anybody thought that. I mean, in the words of one commentator, they're so predictable in uh, making bad trades, uh, in, in, in signing the wrong free agents, and in drafting players that really don't contribute to the needs of the team. And then they sign some young, not well-known, rookie quarterback. Are you tracking with me here? From New England. And everything changes. So at the end of that game, all of us who thought, Tampa Bay? I don't think so. What are we to make of that victory? I mean, what's it mean? Does it mean that mediocre or decent players can rise to the occasion with really good leadership? Or does it mean that the head coach really doesn't matter all that much? Or does it mean that Tom Brady is the GOAT? You know, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the athletic field or business or you individually, personally. Every victory that is won has a meaning. If you determine to break an addiction and you're victorious, it has a meaning. If you pursue a particular job and you get it, it has a meaning. If your company tries to hold to a hold on to a rocky outcrop in Afghanistan, and you do, it has a meaning. But some meanings are relatively inconsequential. Some are more significant. And others, the meaning is everything. We're talking today, as you might imagine, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, an incomparable victory. What's its meaning? What does it mean that someone came out of the grave, even though it's never been done before? Is there a significance? Is it just remarkable or is it significant? John chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 13. And would you this morning stand for the reading of the Word of God? Normally, we read from the back of the gospel accounts on Resurrection Sunday. This one we're reading, this story we're reading about is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and so Jesus went to Jerusalem. That's what you did if you were Jewish. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now remember, they're standing in the courtyard in the area of the, this big massive temple. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Father, we again give you thanks for the power that was exerted on that day when Jesus came back from the dead. The sign of Jonah fulfilled, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights, so the Son of Man in the belly of the earth, and then he wasn't. Dead, and then he wasn't. Grieving disciples, and then rejoicing. We give you praise for the power. We give you praise for the gift. We give you praise for the treasure of all treasures. Not a dead teacher, but a living savior, a living king. Amen. You may be seated. So the question that the people around Jesus that day at the temple were asking is, what is your credential? What is Jesus' credential? Now, so Jesus comes to the temple And he sees what's going on, and he acts. And he acts in such a way that, I don't know about you, but it makes me scratch my head. I remember when I was a kid, and I grew up in the church, I remember hearing this story about Jesus with this whip driving people out of the temple. I'm thinking, that just doesn't fit with the Jesus that I'm typically presented with, Sunday in and Sunday out. And even though I was grown up in the church, I, I hadn't read, we didn't read the scriptures in our home, and I... I hadn't read them much. I had a King James Bible, which I didn't understand at all. But I remember hearing this story, and I'm thinking, this just doesn't jive with the Jesus that I read about elsewhere or that the preacher talks about Sunday in and Sunday out. He he makes a whip. Now, there's nothing peaceful about a whip. There's nothing comforting and encouraging about a whip. He makes a whip. He drives out the people that are in the temple, and he yells at them, why are you doing this? I, I don't even understand the point. Now, if you were a Jew in that day, 
The centerpiece of your life, not just your worship, was the temple. And if you were a Jew that lived 20, 60, or 120 miles away from Jerusalem, you made sure that you made your way to Jerusalem, especially if not for the other free, uh, uh, seven, six holidays or feasts, you made it there for Passover. Problem was, you needed an animal to uh, sacrifice when you got to Jerusalem, and you're not going to drive a sheep for 100 miles if you come from Egypt, Assyria, somewhere else. And so you'd take money along so that you could buy a sacrificial animal there. The other problem was that you need to convert some of your money, your local money, to the temple shekel because when you go, you need to pay your annual temple tax. Every Jew needed to. And there's only one form of currency that's acceptable, and that's the temple, uh, the temple shekel. And so the people, that, the people that Jesus drove out were there in the temple courts serving a purpose, selling animals, exchanging money. The problem was not that they were doing this, but where they were doing it and how they were doing it. Now, we don't get a lot of details in this particular instance, but if you would go to the back of most of your Gospels, you would read about a very similar episode. This one happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The other one happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, the final week. Two temple cleansings. And the other temple cleansing, Jesus gives us more information about why he was so furious. This beautiful temple that took Herod almost half a century to build was magnificent. Had a special place outside the main area. So the, holy, the most holy place, the holy place. Then you have the court of Israel and the court of the women. And then there are these buildings around that whole area. But beyond that is a massive flat space, no landscaping, no trees, no nothing, probably marble floors, where 75,000 people could fit. And it wasn't for Jews. It was for you if you were a follower of Yahweh, but you weren't a Jew. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the merchants had set up shop. And that's where the currency exchangers had set up shop. And so if we look at Mark in that later temple cleansing, Jesus says this. It reveals why he was angry. He says, he says my, house, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for, does anybody know how that verse finishes? For all nations. All nations. Israel was to be the welcoming mat all nations to our God. All nations can come to our God. You can be a follower of the true and living God as well, the most high God. You, you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to have Jewish blood to worship him. And here were these merchants in the way of worshipers. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a, you know that one? Den of thieves. You see, they probably were the only game in town. They probably had all of the business. The only animals, sacrificial animals you could buy when you came in town was there at the temple. And so they could charge what they wanted. And you know if you exchange money in a foreign country, there's always a surcharge, right? You give, a, you give $100, $100, you only get 87 back or so. And these guys were gouging. You have made it a den of thieves. 
You've kept out worshipers and you're cheating your own people. Now, some of the Jewish people react. It says Jewish leaders, but that's not in the original text. It just says the Jews asked Jesus, who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? What right do you have to do this? If you are authorized to do this, do a miracle for us, and then we'll believe that you're authorized. Then you will believe that you have the credential to do this. Now, that was a classic display of phony interest. It happened all the time during Jesus' ministry. People say, do a miracle for us. Even Herod, remember in the final days of Jesus' life? Do a miracle for me. Again and again, when that occurred, it was because of poor motives, evil motives. Matthew 16, 1, one day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority, to test Jesus. They're not really interested in him doing a miracle to impress them. They just want him to, to kind of entertain them. That's all Herod wanted. Entertain me. Do a miracle. Now, Jesus did a lot of miracles, didn't he? But he did them usually out of compassion. My, my mother is suffering. I'll heal her. My son is demonized. I'll, I'll heal him. We don't have any food here. We've been at this Bible conference all day. We don't have any food. I'll make food. He responded to need. But how often it was that people who saw the miracles didn't believe. There are some people like that today. Maybe even you. I'll trust Jesus if he heals me or if he heals my daughter. I'll trust Jesus if he provides the money for that unexpected car bill. I'll trust Jesus if that guy I have my eye on asks me out. If. It's always a condition. Be careful that you don't mistake Jesus for a trick pony for a magic act to entertain you. It's interesting how rarely the people who ask Jesus to do these miracles, not out of compassion, but just to see him perform, how rarely they responded to that. John 12, 37, in spite of all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people did not, still did not believe in him. Jesus, what's your credential? This is important for us as Christians. Jesus' credential is not just that he died. Jesus' credential is not just that he died. Well, let's get the word credential out of the way. So a credential is something that authorizes uh, you to do something or be someone. So we have a few CPAs here in the congregations, certified public accountants. And in order to become CPAs, they had to get a bachelor's degree and then another 30 hours of credits. And then they take a brutal exam of four parts. And if they pass, they become CPAs. That's, uh, they become authorized to help you or your business with your taxes and your financial affairs. I have, a, I have a certificate that hangs in my study that says, I've been ordained by the Evangelical Free Church of America. 
So I had to write a 40-page paper, and then I get examined by a bunch of pastors and a district superintendent uh, for several hours, and then they decide, we, we ordain you, we, we consider you qualified and authorized to be pa- a pastor in our denomination. You don't have to be a professional to have some kind of credential. If you'd pull out your wallet this morning, uh, all of you adults would find in it a driver's license. That credentials, that's a credential so that you can ride, drive on the roads. If you wanted to see a show at the Sight and Sound Theater, you'd have to have a credential to get in. What is that? What's that credential? You have to buy a ticket. Everybody has some sort of credential that authorizes you to do something or be someone. The supreme credential of the Lord Jesus Christ is not that he died on the cross. That that might sound strange to yours, but think about the fact that Jesus' death on the cross, if that was the end of it, meaningless. His supreme credential, the only reason he can do anything in your life and in mine is because he rose from the dead. Resurrection is the supreme credential of the Son of God. Gandhi, who's the founder of modern India, devout Hindu, said in a letter that he wrote to someone in Collegeville, Pennsylvania, Gandhi was the target of many conversion attempts by Christians, and this was one more. And he wrote back to this man. He said, I have not been able to move beyond the belief that Jesus was one of the great teachers of mankind. In other words, I can't get beyond that to believe that he was the son of God. I can't get beyond that to believe that he was God incarnate. Just can't get there. Listen, if Jesus was but a teacher, then we should learn from him. If Jesus was but, was Jesus a teacher? Absolutely. But if that's all he was, if he was but a teacher, we should learn from him. End of story. And there are many people who look to him as a teacher and nothing more. If, if, if Jesus was but an example, and Peter says in 1 Peter 2, that's what he is. Verse 21. He's an example that we're to follow. But if he was all that he was was an example then we should imitate him. But if Jesus, being dead, made himself live again, and not just for a few years like perhaps Lazarus, but live again forever, then we should worship him. We should worship him. Do you worship him? I don't mean do you go to church. I don't mean do you do whatever religious gestures are expected in your church, whether you're Catholic and make the sign of the cross or you're Protestant and you show up with your Bible in hand to authenticate who you are. I mean, do you worship him? Is he king? I love to sing songs about the cross. Do you? I, if you sit near me, 
when we get to singing some of these songs. I, I apologize. I'm a crier, and that's gotten worse the older I've gotten, and I cry about everything, but the cross does me in. It just does me in. I think about him being so brutalized, and I realize it was for me, and I, it just wrecks me. He bled for me. He was tortured for me. He died for me. Do you feel that too when you sing about it, when you read about Jesus on the cross? Does that hit you too? I mean, I feel so loved. I feel so wanted. I feel so blessed. But death, letting himself be killed, was not the final chapter of Jesus' saving work. The cross is not enough. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, listen, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. It's the resurrection. That verse means that when Jesus fought death, the most dangerous and the final enemy, according to Scripture, and when he beat it, he could do the same for you and me. And we're all facing death. We're all facing death, right? Now, those of you who are young, think that's so far away. I thought that too about a week ago. I mean, it just feels like a week ago I was 14. I've aged fast. All of us who are facing death, that, that's a miserable thought unless Jesus' resurrection offers us some kind of hope. How do you get the hope? Buy a ticket. Take a test like the CPAs do. Study hard for that test. Read the Bible and get a to-do list from it. And then start putting it into practice. You know, I talk to people sometimes who are not believers. And by virtue of their feedback, I, I realize that some folks outside the body of Christ... Um, they might not articulate it, but they think that access to this kind of hope means things like this. Okay, I got to become a Republican. I got to stop sleeping with my girlfriend. Uh, I got to clean up my language. I, I need to go to church more often. And I not, need to start helping people so that when they write that I help everyone in my obituary, it's true. Right? You know what I'm saying? That people outside the body of Christ, they don't see the Jesus thing. Or if they do, they think the way I access Jesus' offer of hope is through these, this performance. So how do we access the hope? How do you access the hope? If you're not a child of God, if you're not a follower of the king, how do you access the hope? 
It's not by standing up and walking and doing something. It's not like getting your hands busy, getting your hands dirty. If I just do this for Jesus, no. It's on your knees. It's, it's, it's on your knees. You see, Jesus died as a criminal. You know, he was a joke that no one stood up for. But when he rose from the dead, he rose as a king. Philippians chapter 2, beginning of verse 9. Therefore, God elevated Jesus to the place of highest honor after his death and resurrection. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, and then put your name in there, that at the name of Jesus, Keith, that at the name of Jesus, Heather, that at the name of Jesus, Alyssa, that at the name of Jesus, Bill, should bow. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus rose credentialed, authorized to be your king. Not just any king, but your king. Not just the king in Somalia, but your king, not just the king in Afghanistan, but your king, not just the king in the Philippines, but your king, not just the king in California, but your king. And some of you that today, he is asking you, can I be your king? And he doesn't want you to do all of these things and say, then we'll come and talk about no. Just come to me, and I'll do the heavy lifting for all of that. Here's the fine print. I'm a, I'm a historic history buff, and I love reading about kings, things like kings. And you know what I've discovered? Most of them are brutal. They don't treat their subjects very well. Let me tell you something. Let me draw something out of the fine print about this king. He doesn't just want to be your king, but he will make you kin as well. I want you for my brother. I want you for my sister. I want you to be son, daughter of my father. If you bow the knee to me, I will make you family. So how do you do that? How does Jesus become your king? We repent of our sins means we change our mind about our love affair with sin. Doesn't mean you'll never sin again. It just means I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn toward Christ. And I trust Christ to forgive me for those sins. There's only one thing that stands between you and God. That's your sin. It's not a particular sin. It's not an extremely egregious sin. It's just sin. But Jesus can solve that completely. On September 2nd, it was a Sunday morning like this, 1945. 
If you were a Japanese citizen, you'd look out over the Tokyo Harbor and you would see out there over 250 warships from the United States, Great Britain, China, Russia. And there on the deck of the United States, USS Missouri, Japan, uh, Japan's prime minister and top-ranking general sign papers of surrender. Three weeks earlier, an atomic bomb had been dropped in Hiroshima. A couple days later, another one on Nagasaki. And six days later, the emperor surrendered unconditionally. And as these uh, dignitaries signed the papers of surrender on that battleship, sailors and airmen, aides to these Japanese leaders wept. It was over. They had lost. They'd been conquered. And now they were at the mercy of General Douglas MacArthur. What they couldn't possibly know was that 20 years down the road, even less, Japan's rebound, prosperity, peace, even become a ally of the United States, a strong ally. They, they couldn't imagine what lay ahead for them. How good it was going to eventually become. Because today, was surrender. And I don't want to tell you that if you trust Christ and you make him your king, that everything in life is going to be hunky-dory. But I find it intriguing that as you read through the pages of Christian history, that men and women and even children have gone to their death singing and rejoicing. They clearly know something that not everyone knows. And that what that is that what Jesus offers us is unbelievable. Thanks to his incomparable victory. Thank you, Father, for what has been accomplished. Not just on Calvary, but there in the shadow of the cross, the sunshine of an empty tomb, a hope offered to all, no matter how young, how old, no matter how rich, how poor, no matter our ethnicity, our background, the place we live, the job we do or don't have, that all have been invited to bow at the feet of the King Eternal.